and welcome to the Reaction Podcast with me, Deputy Editor Rachel Cunliffe, and Reaction Editor Ian Martin. This episode of the podcast is all about two places that rarely make headline news, but that have radically altered the political landscape of the UK. I am talking, of course, about the constituencies of Stoke-on-Trent and Copeland. Labour narrowly held on to Stoke, but suffered a historic defeat in Copeland. Ian, who's this good for, who's this bad for, and what does it mean for the future of UK politics? What an easy question. <laughs> I think. I Where mean, do you want to start? Should we begin with... Um, with Copeland, which is, which really is the most extraordinary result and success for Theresa May, um, who was, who who learned the news by text and then woke her husband, and it's the first time that that the government has, uh, a governing party has, won a by-election off another party, um, won a seat off another party in a by-election. I think I'm right in saying in 35 years. Yeah, and it's a seat that really should be solidly Labour and should have remained Labour. And it, interestingly, it even even the the guy who's going, Jamie Reid, who'd had enough of Jeremy Corbyn, has resigned to go and work for the nuclear industry. He had resigned at a time that he thought was of maximum advantage to the party, giving them the best chance of holding it because there's so much anger locally about the NHS. So the, the the majority could have been much bigger for the Tories uh, without that. But so even with that NHS problem locally, the um, Labour lost the seat and got got hammered. So yeah, it's he, just, was, he was trying to do them a favour with the timing of his resignation. Yes, I'm, yeah, I'm sure they don't see it quite like that. But, <laughs> it, it, um, but yes, ostensibly he was, and they still got absolutely um, hammered and then held on to Stoke... Uh, Stoke-on-Trent uh, Central, and uh, but the fact that the Corbynites are claiming that this is some great, some great victory in itself tells a story. I mean, this is a seat that's that's Labour in the way that Surrey is Tory. I mean, it shouldn't have ever been in doubt that Labour would Labour would hold it. But interesting there as well because of what happened to UKIP, of course. So I want to talk about UKIP because actually, in relation to to Copeland, UKIP came fourth. Um, and then lost out on on Stoke, which was clearly where they were throwing all their energy. Um, and UKIP has a habit of, or UKIP leaders have a habit of hopping around the country uh, to stand in in by elections, hoping they'll they'll make it. Uh, they still only have one MP, uh, and that's Douglas Carswell, who is their only MP because he switched sides from mm. the Tories. So UKIP have a habit of trying this and failing. I. Looking at the the current crisis of UKIP and Paul Nuttall, the leader who put all his energy into the first seat that, that came up, I am not sure whether he's going to have that many more chances at trying mm. this um, by-election hopping mm. game. And he's had, including general elections, I think I'm right in saying that this is his fifth attempt to get into Parliament. So he's got some way to go to catch up with Nigel Farage, who had seven goes and... <laughs> Still, never made it into the House of Commons, despite all the. But clearly, it hasn't held him back. No, it hasn't. He's now off, but doing an uh, Alan Partridge impersonation on uh, LBC and various other things. This week, I think he's at CPAC in the in the in the US with Donald Trump as his warm up man. But I think you're right. I think there's something uh, something akin to an existential 
problem now for UKIP post the referendum. I, I had thought that it would that UKIP would, if you like, fade away, but longer term, once Brexit had been delivered. But actually, it seemed because of Paul Nuttall's problems and the disastrous campaign and all the questions he faced about was he at Hillsborough, wasn't he at Hillsborough, um, the British footballing disaster, and a whole host of other associated difficulties, he got humiliated and... Um, it's really what what are, what is UKIP for now? If Brexit, they had this great historic role in delivering Brexit by forcing the, ref, the referendum and forcing Cameron's hand, as we've talked about before. But now that that's done, what is what is UKIP? Uh, there might there might conceivably be a role for an insurgent populist party that wants no immigration whatsoever, but UKIP itself is split on that. Douglas Carswell is in favour of lots of immigration and is on the liberal wing of UKIP, which is which does exist. And other UKIP MEPs and uh, and significant figures have, have different views. So the thing that held them together was driving to get a referendum and the leadership of Farage, who was, no matter what people think of him, he was exceptionally charismatic and appealing to a narrow but significant strand of the electorate, about 10 to 15% of the electorate that he appealed to. And he made history, but I, it just feels as though their time has gone, which is terrific news for, for the Tories, potentially, and maybe even good news longer term for Labour or whatever replaces Labour on the centre-left if UKIP does fade away a bit. I think there's a bit of a paradox, though, in that Labour has been really worried about losing support, especially in the north, to UKIP. And that was definitely uh, a worry that you saw in the in the poll numbers at the last general election. But in, in Copeland, that didn't happen. Um, mm. The Labour voters skipped straight over UKIP and went to the Tories, who yeah. have never really had that much of a presence um, there. And what is it about... Because in some ways you can look at Theresa May's party and think that it should be in crisis. Very thin majority, a prime minister who never won an election, dealing with the most controversial and divisive uh, and difficult issue of, of the time, which is Brexit. A cabinet that is really split on all kinds of issues. Um, this should be a, a weak government, and yet she is picking up Labour votes and also UKIP votes and strengthening support mm. across the political spectrum. It doesn't seem like that should be possible. I suspect that something very interesting is happening here, which is that, it, which is that Theresa May seems to have made the most extraordinary connection with, with, with certain kinds of voters. And... What seems to be coming back from, well, results like Copeland, but also focus groups and opinion polling, is that some of those voters, they just see her as particularly authentic and they like the fact that she's not slick in the way that David Cameron and George Osborne were. She represents a different kind of Toryism. 
Um, I use the word authentic, but it's not suggesting that they're not authentic, but that she has a connection there with... with she's not flashy. She's not flashy, and that seems to connect even with Labour voters. Who you, I spoke to a couple of Labour MPs earlier this week who were privately acknowledging precisely that, that voters in their own constituencies were saying they liked her because she's going to deliver on Brexit and not making too much of a fuss about it, not being too showy about it. Now, that is either a short-term honeymoon process akin to what Gordon Brown experienced in the summer of 2007 when he became prime minister, where there was some evidence that he managed to actually win over swing voters and maybe even a few conservative voters, astonishingly, considering what happened after that with the financial crisis. It didn't last. It was a it was a honeymoon. He flunked it by not going for an early election. She's not doesn't want to go for an early election at all and feels it would be flashy and uh, and, and and showy. So the question then is, is this either it's either a real a potential realignment, allowing the Tories to reach into some of the kind of seats that they haven't won before, or it's a brief flurry based around the fact that the economy hasn't crashed post-Brexit and she's getting a honeymoon, which prime ministers always get. Uh, it's the answer to that question, which of those is it? It depends on things which haven't, haven't necessarily happened yet in, in terms of the economy. But understandably, the Tories are, this weekend, are absolutely cock-a-hoop. So we've talked about the irrelevance of UKIP and the success of the Tories. Mm. Let's end with Labour. Um, and as you said, we, as we sort of started with, uh, they're claiming it's a victory that they managed to cling on to a seat that they should never have been in danger of losing in the first place. Um, I'm not sure if you saw uh, some, some polling that came out this week about potential future leaders of the Labour Party, uh, ranking them on likability and how well-known they were and uh, what comes across is there really isn't anyone who is both well known by the general public and also well liked uh, except for possibly Sadiq Khan and I think he's got his hands full at the moment mm. um, Rebecca Long-Bailey her name came up and I know she's a personal favourite of yours well, just on the basis that I thought <laughs> it was, she was a, a spoof I didn't actually think it was a real person but I, that's very unfair of me she, she, she is a real person and in the shadow cabinet and potentially could be the next leader if Labour can ever elect a woman as their leader, which <laughs> hasn't happened yet. Um, but I'm just wondering, given that there are no contenders who seem both um, to have a, a, a good public presence mm. and also to be liked by the general public, are these people hiding? Are there, is there a new generation that actually is going to take a couple of years? Uh, have the Corbynistas forced them all out? Does it have mm. to be somebody coming back? Uh, is it going to be Dan Jarvis, who's biding his time at the moment? If there, let's, let's say we want there to be a future for Labour. Mm. Where is the easiest route that that future is going to come from? Well, I think ju just on that final point there about about the next generation, where are they? There are actually, there are, on the Labour benches, there are quite a significant number of really talented people who, by necessity, have to go slightly quiet and are letting the, the Corbyn experiment um, play out. It's interesting, I, I included it in my 
um, member-only email, which has gone out on, uh, which, which goes out every Friday, a little story, a little vignette that a Labour MP had told me about George Osborne advising, just George Osborne, former Chancellor, making the observation to, to some senior Labour figures that, that the Labour mo moderates have made a complete mess of it, that they should have they should have followed the advice of the, the Conservatives in that when IDS was elected Tory leader in 2001, the Tory modernisers and the Tory establishment just let him run for two years on the basis that he had to be, as they saw it, he had to be allowed to fail. And then they did what the Tory party does magnificently well. They mounted a ruthless coup and removed him and replaced him very quickly with, with Michael Howard. Whereas the Labour moderates went on this kamikaze mission, understandably, of trying to remove him after only a, a year. Yeah, he was failing, though. He was. More, no, uh, more dramatically than, than Ian Duncan Smith was. Well, I don't know about uh, that. But, yeah. you don't, I, I think that the, the, the sheer speed of, the, of Jeremy Corbyn's ability to eliminate any sense of electoral credibility from the party <laughs> is staggering. Put like that, yes, you've got a point. Well, it's, I mean, it seemed pretty... I mean, Ian Duncan Smith has in many ways, successfully reinvented himself as the great welfare reformer since and had a, uh, made a fascinating contribution since he was removed as leader. But it was pretty, it was pretty grim at the time. I think even his friends would acknowledge. I mean, he was getting absolutely smashed to pieces in Prime Minister's questions and... Tory party was polling very, very badly. Yes, but they weren't net unfavourable among Tory voters, whereas Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> is net unfavourable among Labour voters. Yes, you're right. Put like yes, put like that. It's it's even. But I, I, it's off the scale. I take Corbyn your point. It was scale. it was a dark moment for the Tory party, and the moderates waited and then managed to ruthlessly get rid of him. But then now they've they've the the Labour moderates have blown that opportunity a year ago with the botched attempt to remove him in a leadership contest. They're stuck. Labour seems stuck with him. Doesn't seem to be any indication that John McDonnell and Corbyn are going to go anywhere. You've still got this membership, which I think they've shared some members as some of the Corbynite uh, maniacs have drifted away, but it's still huge pro-Corbyn membership. So it's very difficult to see what can happen until it's actually tested in a general election. Uh, so if he makes it to 2020 and Labour then gets uh, gets heavily defeated, it, it's difficult to see what, what is the what's the trigger for something other what's the what could possibly prevent Labour running all the way to a general election and getting and, and, and getting beaten. However, as I said, under un, underneath the surface there are there are a lot of talented Labour Labour people and talented Labour MPs who don't want this to go on and don't and want Britain to have a serious non-Tory opposition and I think it's ultimately what's happening is is really positive I think it's in, it's depressing in the short term for those of us who want there to be a serious opposition party at the very least to just test the Tories and give the country choice but I take a very optimistic view of it which is that it is proving that the far left who've always wanted to take over the Labour Party are completely and utterly useless and that their insane ideas have no purchase at all with the mass of the electorate in England or other parts of the UK 
and it's being tested to destruction and they're being humiliated and exposed and hopefully the Labour moderates if they ever get the chance can put together something with centrists which is a non-socialist sensible non-Tory opposition that stands a chance of at least giving the Tories a run for their money because I think that would be healthy. So what you're implying is a kind of creative destruction for the Labour Party and that something sensible and electable will rise from the ashes. Well, they've had the destruction part of that. I'm not <laughs> sure they've really had the creativity yet, but it seems the Tories are very well placed at the moment, but these things never last forever. There's a large part of the, the country is non-Tory. The majority of the country is non-Tory. There's, there is scope for and room for I think once Brexit uh, is out of the way, but once you get into the 2020s, it is not preordained that the Tories are going to be in this position forever. And once the Blairite backlash against Brexit has blown itself out, which I think it will, what is a, what is a moderate centre-left alternative to the Tories? What does it look like? What answers does it have on on AI, on technological change on the dramatic changes which are going to happen in the economy in the 2020s and 2030s on education on universities on social care on reforming the national health service on returning to the the blairite agenda on schools reform masses to do on reconfiguring foreign policy post post brexit there is there's scope there, there's, there's scope for more than one major political party in the UK. It's difficult precisely to see how it happens now, but I, I, I think it, uh, something will emerge, surely. That's a lovely optimistic note to end on. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Reaction Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us five stars. You can read more from Ian Martin and me, Rachel Cunliffe, at www.reaction.life, where you can also sign up to become a Reaction member. Music